Now that the new Supreme Court term is well underway, we've started a second season of the show, and we're going to turn our focus to opinions that are either decided in or pertaining to the 2022 term. So in a season finale of sorts, I've put together a collection of my favorite introductions to highlight the best of season one. Enjoy. Welcome back. Look, I don't know about you guys, but as a political scientist, I get a little bummed out sometimes with all the controversy. And while reading Supreme Court opinions is something I normally find fascinating, it can weigh a bit heavily on one's mood, if you know what I'm saying, even for an optimist like myself. So today, I'm going to show you that not every decision the court makes is of the sort that will determine the fate of our very democracy. Some of them provide an opportunity to showcase the justices' individual personalities through oral argument banter, as was often the case with Antonin Scalia, or the epigrammatic writing of Clarence Thomas. Which brings us to today's opinion, complete with a stripper named Peaches, the smell of marijuana in the air, a very dirty floor, and utter bacchanalia. Admit it, you are a little intrigued, no? So, without further ado, I give you the 2018 unanimous opinion of the court in District of Columbia v. Westby. Hey, SCOTUS fans! In this Listener Library episode, I'll be reading the 1971 Supreme Court case New York Times v. United States, which addressed the Nixon administration's efforts to prevent the publication of what it considered to be classified information in an act that the court considered to be unconstitutional prior restraint of the free press. In New York Times v. United States, the Supreme Court established important precedent by reaffirming the prior restraint doctrine when they allowed newspapers to print the Pentagon Papers, which were secret documents about the Vietnam War that had been stolen by a former Pentagon employee and given to the New York Times and the Washington Post to publish. The court held that newspapers not only had a First Amendment right to publish the information at issue, but also that the public had a right to hear it. And now, the 1971 opinion of the court in New York Times Company v. United States. A 1924 Virginia law that originated from a bill created by leaders of the now-defunct eugenics movement allowed the non-consensual reproductive sterilization of individuals confined to institutions for various conditions. 
The law allowed doctors to sterilize patients without their consent when the patients had a condition that the doctor believed was hereditary. A pregnant Virginia woman, Carrie Buck, was diagnosed as a feeble-minded woman and confined to a state mental institution when the Virginia sterilization law was passed. Because her so-called feeble-mindedness was said to have been present in Carrie's family for three generations, her doctor began the process to have her sterilized. The question before the Supreme Court in this case was whether the Virginia law denied Carrie Buck the right to due process of the law and the equal protection of the laws provided by the 14th Amendment. So, what did the court say? Since this is a really short opinion, let's just listen and find out. Without further delay, I give you the controversial 1927 opinion of the court in Buck v. Bell. In asking the court to declare sex a suspect criterion, Amicus urges a position forcibly stated in 1837 by Sarah Grimke, noted abolitionist and advocate of equal rights for men and women. She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Those were the closing words spoken by Ruth Bader Ginsburg before the Supreme Court of the United States in Frontiero v. Richardson. Words she recited a full 20 years before she would be appointed to the court herself. When the case was argued in 1973, federal law provided that the spouses of men serving in the military became dependents automatically, but the spouses of women who served in the military were not accepted as dependents unless they were dependent on their wives for over half of their financial support. So when United States Air Force Lieutenant Sharon Frontiero applied to receive a dependence allowance for her husband in 1968, she was denied the allowance because his income was not low enough to qualify. The question before the court in this case was whether the federal law, having different qualification requirements based on the service member's sex alone, violated the Fifth Amendment's Due Process Clause. The court said it did, although they disagreed over the appropriate standard of review and the level of scrutiny to apply the details of which you are about to hear for yourself. And now, the landmark 1973 plurality opinion of the court in Frontiero v. Richardson. When public schools in the state of New York incorporated the voluntary recitation of a brief daily prayer each morning, several groups got together and argued that the school's conduct violated the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. 
the New York Court of Appeals disagreed. When the case was decided by the Supreme Court, it held that the school's conduct crossed that line of separation that the Constitution has drawn between church and state, and that public schools had no business writing formal prayers to be memorized and recited at school, voluntarily or not. And now, the 1962 opinion of the court in Engel v. Vitale. Is rhetorical hyperbole, satire, parody, or opinion protected by the First Amendment when it doesn't contain assertions of fact and when the subject of the rhetorical hyperbole is a public figure? Hustler is a pornographic magazine whose founder, Larry Flint, was not one to shy away from tucking a little social and political commentary in between the pages of photo layouts. In fact, in 1983, the magazine's lead story included a parody of a political ad claiming that the very politically active, conservative, Christian fundamentalist minister, Jerry Falwell, committed incest with his mother in an outhouse. Gross, I know. In response, Reverend Falwell sued Hustler magazine to recover damages for libel, emotional distress, and for invading his privacy. On the emotional distress claim, a jury awarded him damages of $150,000, and Hustler magazine appealed. The case eventually found its way to the Supreme Court, and the constitutional question before them was whether patently offensive statements regarding public figures are protected under the First Amendment's free speech clause. In a unanimous decision, the court said yes. Now, this isn't just another provocative, high-profile case that is, well, more than just a little interesting, if we're being honest. Rather, it established important precedent about parody as it relates to the First Amendment right to free speech. This case has been on my mind recently after learning about an Ohio man who filed a petition for certiorari with the court after he had been arrested and subsequently acquitted for creating a parody Facebook page that made fun of his local police department. If this case sounds familiar to you, it's probably because of all of the public attention that it received when the famous parody publication, The Onion, recently filed a very real amicus brief with the court in support of the petitioner, explaining in between bits of its own parody why parody is an essential form of expression in our democracy, perhaps now more than ever before. And now, the 1988 unanimous opinion of the court 
in Hustler Magazine v. Falwell. When Clarence Gideon appeared without a lawyer before a Florida court in the felony charge of breaking and entering, he requested an attorney be appointed for him. But Florida state law only allowed a court-appointed attorney to indigent defendants in capital cases, so the trial court did not appoint one. So, Gideon represented himself in trial. President Lincoln was right when he said that he who represents himself has a fool for a client. But what else is that fool supposed to do in order to defend his innocence if he can't afford an attorney? Gideon was subsequently found guilty and sentenced to five years in prison. After filing a habeas corpus petition in the Florida Supreme Court, arguing his constitutional right to be represented by counsel, that court denied habeas corpus relief. When the case made its way before the Supreme Court of the United States, a unanimous court sided with Gideon. The opinion I'll be reading today expanded the decision of the court in Powell v. Alabama, which incorporated to the states the right to an attorney in capital punishment cases by applying this right to the defendants in all felony cases. And now, the 1963 unanimous decision of the court in Gideon v. Wainwright. Charles Katz was a gambling man. Since he lived in Los Angeles and his bookies lived in Miami and Boston, he placed his bets over the phone. And since all of this was illegal, Mr. Katz placed these phone calls on public payphones just in case the feds were on to him and decided to tap his phone. Katz wasn't being unduly paranoid either because the feds were on to him and in fact the FBI was a step ahead of him. So federal agents placed a recording device on the outside of the phone booths where Katz was known to place his bets. The FBI's plan worked. Katz was indicted on eight counts for the illegal transmission of gambling information from LA to Boston and Miami and subsequently convicted. He appealed arguing that the recordings could not be used as evidence against him. The Court of Appeals rejected Katz's argument since the recording device was not placed inside the phone booth itself, but attached to the outside. When the Supreme Court granted certiorari in this case, the question before them was whether the Fourth Amendment protection against unreasonable searches and seizures required the agents to first obtain a search warrant to wiretap the public payphone even though the device technically wasn't a wiretap. In a 7-to-1 decision, the court said that it did. And now, the 1967 opinion of the court in Katz, the United States. 
1958, in an effort to keep the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or NAACP, from conducting future business in Alabama, a circuit court issued a restraining order at the request of the state and subsequently issued a subpoena for a list of records belonging to the NAACP, including their membership roster. Today I'll be reading the 1958 opinion of the court in NAACP v. Alabama, in which the Supreme Court determined whether the state of Alabama's actions violated the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. And now, the 1958 unanimous opinion of the court in NAACP v. Alabama. David O'Brien burned his draft card outside the entrance to a Boston courthouse. When he was arrested by a federal agent just moments later, he said he was exercising his First Amendment right to express his opposition to the Vietnam War. He was subsequently convicted under the Universal Military Training and Service Act of 1948, a federal law that made the destruction or mutilation of draft cards a crime. The question before the Supreme Court in this case was not whether Mr. O'Brien was guilty of violating the law, but whether the law violated Mr. O'Brien's First Amendment freedom of expression. In a 7-to-1 majority, the court not only disagreed with Mr. O'Brien, they also established a new test to determine whether the government regulation of symbolic speech is justified. The test asks if the regulation in question is within the constitutional power of the government, if it furthers an important or substantial governmental interest, if the governmental interest is unrelated to the suppression of free expression, and if the incidental restriction on alleged First Amendment freedoms is not greater than is essential to the furtherance of that interest. And now, the 1968 opinion of the court in U.S. v. O'Brien. The core principle of Republican government is that the voters should choose their representatives, not the other way around. Partisan gerrymandering turns it the other way around. And of all times to abandon the court's duty to declare the law, this was not the one. Last episode, I read the 2019 majority opinion in Rucho v. Common Cause, a case in which a three-judge district court had ruled that... North Carolina's 2016 Congressional District Map was the product of Republican-directed partisan gerrymandering, enjoining the state from using the map after November 2018. 
North Carolina Republicans appealed the decision to the Supreme Court. The court consolidated Rucho with a very similar gerrymandering case out of Maryland, only that case was at the direction of Democrats. In a 5-4 opinion, split along their own ideological and partisan lines, the court held that partisan gerrymandering claims are not justiciable because they present a political question beyond the reach of the federal courts. Today I'll be reading the dissenting opinion in this case, which held that not only is partisan gerrymandering within the court's reach, but that ignoring the opportunity to address it ultimately robs Americans from across the ideological spectrum of their most fundamental constitutional rights. The rights to participate equally in the political process and to choose their political representatives, not the other way around. And now, the 2019 dissenting opinion in Rucho v. Common Cause. Welcome back, SCOTUS fans. This episode features a really interesting case that you'll want to understand before the Supreme Court's October term begins. And that's because on the very first day of the November session, scheduled for October 31st, the court will be hearing oral arguments in two affirmative action cases. They are Students for Fair Admissions v. University of North Carolina, and Students for Fair Admissions v. President and Fellows of Harvard College. In the judgment that I'll be reading today, Regents of the University of California v. Bakke from 1978, the question before the court was whether the University of California violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause and the Civil Rights Act of 1964 by practicing an affirmative action policy that resulted in the repeated rejection of Alan Bakke's application for admission to its medical school. In an 8-to-1 decision for Bakke, the court held no single majority opinion. Instead, the justices held their own opinions, for the most part, and Justice Powell delivered a judgment of the court. Welcome back, SCOTUS nerds. Today I thought I'd read one more affirmative action case as we wait for the court to make a decision in the two students for fair admissions cases that they recently heard. The case I'll be reading today is similar to a 2003 case I read a couple of weeks ago, Gruder v. Bollinger. Both involved white females who had applied for admission to a particular university and were subsequently denied. In this case, Abigail Fisher applied for admission to the University of Texas but was denied. In keeping with the court's ruling in Gruder, the University of Texas considered many factors in the admissions process, including race. 
Fisher sued the university, arguing that their consideration of race in the admissions process violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The district court disagreed, and so did the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. When the case made its way before the Supreme Court, it held that the appellate court erred by not applying the strict scrutiny standard in its decision. So the case was remanded, and the appellate court reaffirmed the lower court's decision, holding that the admissions process indeed satisfied strict scrutiny standards. So without further delay, I give you the 2016 opinion of the court in Fisher v. University of Texas. It is customary for Jehovah's Witnesses to directly share the message of their religious faith with others by canvassing neighborhoods door to door or simply approaching people in public and striking up a conversation. That's what Newton Cantwell and his sons were doing one day in a Connecticut neighborhood whose residents were primarily Catholic. The Cantwells angered two pedestrians that day when part of their message was critical of the Catholic faith. The Cantwells were arrested and charged with violation of a Connecticut statute requiring solicitors to obtain a certificate before soliciting funds from the public and for inciting a common law breach of the peace. The question before the court in this case was whether the convictions of Newton Cantwell and his sons violated the First Amendment. The court not only sided with Cantwell, but their decision in this case incorporated the First Amendment freedom of religion to the states. And now, the 1940 unanimous opinion of the court in Cantwell v. Connecticut. While in the bedroom of his own home, Michael Hardwick was observed by a police officer in the act of consensual homosexual sodomy with another man. He was subsequently charged with violating a Georgia law criminalizing sodomy. Hardwick challenged the constitutionality of the Georgia law in federal district court, which the court later dismissed. But the Court of Appeals reversed and remanded, holding that Georgia's statute was unconstitutional. Georgia appealed to the Supreme Court. And the question before the court was whether homosexuals have the constitutional right to engage in consensual sodomy in the privacy of their own home. In a 5-4 decision, the court said no, holding that the states were free to outlaw consensual homosexual sodomy. That is, until the court overturned this decision in 2003 in Lawrence v. Texas. However, in his recent concurring opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson, Justice Clarence Thomas expressed a desire 
to reconsider Lawrence v. Texas in an upcoming term, which brings a previously overturned case like this one back into the spotlight. And now, the 1986 opinion of the court in Bowers v. Hardwick. Steamboat operators Aaron Ogden and Thomas Gibbons were partners brought together not by the mutual love of steamboats, but by the sharing of a common enemy. You see, New York state law gave the exclusive rights to navigate state waters to steamboat operators Livingston and Fulton for a period of 20 years because it was clear their business would not survive if the Livingston-Fulton monopoly were to remain, Ogden and other competitors who relied on the ability to navigate state waters tried to prevent it from taking effect. But Livingston and Fulton managed to buy most of them out, except Aaron Ogden, who partnered up with a steamboat operator who did business between New York and New Jersey under a federal license, Thomas Gibbons. Just three years later, the Ogden-Gibbons partnership came to an end when Ogden sued Gibbons in state court for taking another boat on one of Ogden's regular New York routes without authorization. Gibbons argued that his federal license gave him the authorization to navigate Ogden's route because the federal government controlled interstate commerce through the United States Congress, not the state of New York, who issued Ogden's license. The state court of New York disagreed with Gibbons, and so they granted Ogden a permanent injunction. When the case eventually came before the Supreme Court, the question was whether the Commerce Clause in fact gave Congress authority over interstate navigation as Gibbons claimed. The court agreed entirely with Gibbons in a unanimous decision that interstate navigation indeed fell under interstate commerce and New York could not interfere with it. Therefore, the New York law giving a 20-year monopoly to Livingston and Fulton was invalid. And now, the 1824 opinion of the court in Gibbons v. Ogden. Hey SCOTUS fans, you are in for a treat today because I'll be reading the Supreme Court opinion that defined the court's authority to interpret the Constitution. It is at the center of the court's identity, its very essence, its nucleus, the meat and potatoes, if you will, the big kahuna of all Supreme Court decisions. The 1803 Opinion of the Court in Marbury v. Madison. Incumbent President John Adams lost the election of 1800 to Thomas Jefferson. But before Jefferson was inaugurated on March 4, 1801, a bitter President Adams worked with Congress to push through a law intended to leave a long-lasting mark of his influence while in office and 
to frustrate the incoming President Jefferson in the process. The Judiciary Act of 1801 expanded the federal judiciary, added a bunch of new courts, and appointed 16 new judges and over 40 new justices of the peace. And all were subsequently approved by the Senate. Jefferson's new Secretary of State, James Madison, was having none of it. So, in defiance, he refused to deliver the commissions of the new appointees in an attempt to prevent them from fulfilling their respective offices. Without giving away the details of this opinion, I will tell you this. The unanimous opinion of the court that I am reading today is the Supreme Court decision that made the Supreme Court the entity that it is today by establishing their power of constitutional interpretation through judicial review. Judicial review is the power and process by which the Supreme Court may determine the constitutionality of federal laws, policies, and the decisions of lower state and federal courts. And I've got to say, for such an old opinion, Justice Marshall's writing stands the test of time. And now, without further delay, the Supreme Court case of all Supreme Court cases. The 1803 unanimous opinion of the court in Marbury v. Madison. Happy Election Week, everyone! While we still do not know the final tally in many congressional district races, most of us already know how well our voting preferences performed in our particular state or district. But even if those results are in, if you live in a state that has been unfairly gerrymandered, your vote may not count the way it should. Which brings us to today's case, Baker v. Carr from 1964. Last week, I read the majority and dissenting opinions in the case Rucho v. Common Cause from 2019. The majority in that case held that political gerrymandering of congressional districts as opposed to racial gerrymandering, which is prohibited by Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, is a political question, and therefore, since it's a political question, it's non-justiciable, or it's beyond the court's power to resolve. But the dissent argued that the court had already held apportionment cases were indeed reviewable by federal courts in Baker v. Carr, and twice upheld in Westbury v. Sanders and Reynolds v. Sims both decided in 1964. Collectively, these three cases are known as the one-person, one-vote cases because they were concerned with ensuring substantial equality of voting districts when compared to the actual population. In other words, if a quarter of a state identifies with party A, and there are four districts in that state, Party A should have one district, not three or four. But the court 
in Rucho ignored these precedents established 50 years earlier in the Marshall Court's one-person, one-vote cases. Chief Justice Marshall thought that today's case was so important that when he was later asked which case he was most proud of during his tenure on the court, he did not say Brown v. Board of Education. He said that this one, Baker v. Carr, was because no kind of equality will last for long if it doesn't extend to the ballot box. And now, the opinion of the court in Baker v. Carr. I hope you enjoyed that little season one montage, and perhaps something you heard even sparked your curiosity enough to go back and listen to a particular opinion. Whether this is your first episode, or if you're a regular listener, if you'd like to reach out and introduce yourself and maybe tell me a little bit about how you came to be a listener of the show, it would make my entire day. And how often do you really get to say that you made someone's entire day? Hmm? So navigate your way over to the show's website at whatscotuswroteus.podbean.com and click on the contact tab at the top of the page to leave me a message. And just so you know, you can listen to this podcast directly through your internet browser right from the show's website. You don't even need to stream it through a podcast platform if you don't want to. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.